This is Aliens and Artists. Part 2 of our conversation with Michael Garfield. I'm your host, Stuart Davis. In this part of our conversation, Michael and I begin by discussing how his wife Nikki and my wife Marcy have had similar responses to some of the shared paranormal experiences which have occurred in our respective marriages over the years. It's actually a pretty hilarious relational dynamic we explore. Divergent takes on high strangeness is a theme we'd venture to guess might be disclosed by many couples and families with multiple experiencers. You say paranormal, I say pareidolia. Let's call the late Charles Fort. <laughs> Sorry. Actually, this one is, is, is probably something that other people listening will appreciate is that Nikki, when listening to Marcy through this whole thing, has just been like with her lighter in the air. <laughs> you know, like your your whole your whole like, yeah, there's a UFO outside, it's 3 a.m. and sleep is more important. Like at the and sleep is more important thing. I'm astounded to discover is like this is a this is a pattern. Man, this is a this is. I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying it always tears down the 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 same way down the male female uh, boundary because I can easily see it going the other way, you know. But it seems like there's always one person who's like, "Huh," and the other person's just like, "Uh." I totally agree. It is a pattern. We see this over and over again. And why do you suppose that is? Is this the intelligence of mutuality of the couple? where some part of the dyad knows that half the couple has to hold down the fort while the other one careens off toward the event horizon? What do you think it is about this dynamic in couples with respect to the paranormal? I mean, basically, yeah. I, I mean, it's like the, what, what is, what is, this thought occurred because what is stopping us from creating a film studio? Uh, our, our wives. <laughs> You know, and like, <laughs> I, I think that there is something about um, the, so like the human evolving as a social molecule, right? And I mean, you said it all just now, but the the way that like zebra and wildebeest migrate together because they have complementary sensory faculties, Yeah, you know, one smells better and one sees better. And so they hang out together. And so that mm. there's like that whole, that whole, uh, maximal entropy production, fractal branching river Delta view of evolution Yeah, that I'm just like, yep, that's what it is. Is that, you know, when, when you and Sean Espion and Hargens were talking about the hybrids and how it's just talk about both and right like that's it's just mm. all of the things all of the possible things you know like i feel i want to call in the various uh, science fictional uh, versions of narrative storytelling that have done well with this because i feel like uh you know like rick and morty for example mm. has really mainlined and mainstreamed the um, absolutely every possible alternate reality exists somewhere 
trope, you know, <laughs> and, and just like, like that, that whole thing of like, um, I was talking with uh, a friend of mine yesterday about reading Jeff Vandermeer's novel, Dead Astronauts. And it, it, it's like, oh, you're fighting yourself again. Like that, the fighting yourself in the multiverse thing has really come out in the last three years. You know, like we're really, we're really, it seems like shuddering into the appreciation of the universe being as just obscenely creative as it actually is, you know, and us being in that and like, let's start from there, you know, completely. I mean, you were one of the artists I was most interested in posing this question to. I'll ask it now since we've put our toe in these waters. How strange is it going to get? And by that I mean, to what degree will high strangeness, the truly weird, the prismatic infinitude of possibilities and perspectives that you just related, Rick and Morty, being a great example of making narratives from this vein. But when you forecast into the future, to what degree do you sense these paranormal phenomena or the non-ordinary ecosystems? Will they penetrate and integrate with what we know as, quote, normal waking reality? Can you paint a picture for us of what might be headed our way in that regard? Well, as an authority of, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, uh, well, you know, it's funny because I, you know, I work at a very staid and prestigious and, um, you know, and I say this lovingly, but it kind of image obsessed, small, but very well-known scientific organization, almost called it a religious organization, uh, the Santa Fe Institute, Mm. which is, you know, the, the, they don't like to think of themselves as a think tank. It's like a science monastery in the hills in New Mexico mm-hmm. that came up with most of what today is being practiced as like complex systems research, which includes epidemiology and, you know, massive, you know, scale evolutionary interventions. <laughs> and it's, mm-hmm. I mean, this is like the direction that science is, is, is tilting us. Um, and I was like, what am I doing here uh, on the communications team i am a fecal transplant <laughs> and that i had this thought that it's like you know the the like now is the time for the you got to get the holobiome going right like you need uh you need somebody without a phd who spent 13 years on festival tour mm, yeah uh inside this thing because i have accumulated a like a deep kinesthetic felt sense of all of the things I have. I have a strongly developed intuitive understanding of everything that's going on there. Mm. I just, what I, what I do not have is uh, some of the mathematical formalisms required to explain it in the way that they understand it, but I can talk about it in a way that everyone else understands it. And so like I am, what I see is like precisely at this point where, um, like an anchorite monk. Uh, this is me establishing my my credibility for people. I don't know if it's working, um, <laughs> but like an anchorite monk uh, in the wall of the monastery. You know, they're they're like a special kind of hermit yep. because they're actually being fed by both sides, the inner world and the outer world of 
the monastery in the village. Mm -hmm. Um, and yet they see no one, they, you know, they directly interact with no one. It's, it's, it's rather beautiful. Um, and thus is my life, uh, under the conditions of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. But, um, I, I say that because what I, what I am seeing from that particular perch, um, is the continuation and the hastening of a pattern that, uh, was, unspooling over my entire life, your entire life of, and you know, and I'm really, when I say all this, I'm actually kind of just looking over the shoulder of Eric Davis. Yeah. Uh, but of the weirdest stuff in one's mind becoming not only like mundane in the sense that it's being sold at target in the electronic section, which has like grown like a tumor this this uh this whole area of like geek chic gamer culture non-electronic paraphernalia you know just like the the t-shirts and the action figures of like various 80s sci-fi movies um but like I, I don't know i i also see uh, so like, let's talk in concrete terms, like, you know, Sean S. Bernhagen's likes this doubling, right? And so the doubling shows up in, uh, the Stuart and Marcy, Michael and Nikki thing, right? Like, oh yeah, it is. And it is not important. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> we, we, uh, are actually on a mountain looking for UFOs and we're just here taking a picnic, you know? Because I have to just believe that this is a picnic for us to, to think that this is not a waste of time. Um, and so, like, when it comes to, like, the mainstreaming of weirdness, one of the weirdest things about it, and the, the weird studies guys, J.F. Martell and Phil Ford, have done a really good job of uh, exploring this particular paradox, is that it, uh, it's weird because it's normal. And like the weird is deeply, I mean, the normal is deeply weird, you know, Yeah. Um, that these binaries actually don't really serve us in, in describing what we're describing. And, and that's why, you know, like for which I'm really grateful that Sean has, has given us this whole like angelology of, of, uh, you know, structure to work within, to describe the different kinds of, of real that we're, that we're in, engaging here. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's like a Sapir-Whorf hypothesis thing, right? Like in, in linguistics, the, the notion that your perception is limited by your ability to label and describe your perception. So, you know, the Russians famously being able to see more shades of blue than English speakers because they speak Russian. Um, and so I think it's it's kind of just that. It's like, we're at a point right now in earth history where we're manufacturing new mineral species at a rate that the earth never has. Like the, even at the most like chemical kind of material fundamental level of things we're in what Terrence McKenna, I think rightly identified as a sort of vertical novelty slope uh, that, you know, if you look at this moment from space, you know, like with the eyes of a paleontologist, with the eyes of a, an astronomer, then 
what's going on right now is is deeply weird. It's a kind of explosion. It's an explosion of self-sustaining, self-organizing, adaptive processes on the surface of this planet. And the uh, exhaust of this process is not just more of itself, right? Because it's the second law of thermodynamics. It's like, there's all of this other stuff, which is interesting because I think that, you know, in the framing of like us creating a media object, we are, um, we are in, engaged in an, an inventive act right now. And archaeologists are like looking in the, the middens, the trash heap for all the things that tell them about us that we didn't um, necessarily consider important, but are important clues to our lives. So I often think about um, the work of the artist as like the food for these curious beings that are investigating this and, and, you know, at various levels investigating or participating in this uh, evolutionary event that's going on here. And, you know, wherever else, I assume, you know, like one of the fundamental assumptions for me, I think in this conversation in this space is Copernican, just like relentlessly and tirelessly marginalizing yourself in the story, you know, being like, how far can I push myself into the corner? Because that's what every other major scientific revolution has done, you know, <laughs> and be like, okay, now, like, now what does this story look like when we are, you know, just one of many, many human races, et cetera? Completely fair question, considering the profusion of bipedal, hominid, anthropoid, yet non-earthly entities that appear to be commingling in myriad ways with the other more exotic truly non-anthropomorphic entities. Before we get there, I want to tack on a part B to this question, which is, do you feel that intelligence, which is feeding on artists and creativity undergoing this Nova-like moment or epoch, perhaps, do you feel this dynamic is symbiotic? What characterization would you assign to these curious sentiences which are interacting with our artistry, ostensibly deriving sustenance of some kind. Is it predatory, exploitative, symbiotic? What would you say? You know, Stuart, I've known you for a long time and I've <clears throat> I've known you long enough to know when you are baiting me with an <laughs> oar. <laughs> uh. Like <laughs> We've already established. <laughs> we've already established that this is, like, you know, uh, about how do we, how do we, in in what David Krakauer at SFI, I, I'm, I, I hope he understands. Uh, again, I'm, I think of this in a, like a lovingly way, loving way. But you know, there's like a kind of a, a drinking bingo card, where he talks about things being principled, rigor, rigorous, and quantitative. You know, principled, rigorous, quantitative, and I'm like, okay, so how do we approach? this and sean's doing it um perhaps not as quantitative as it possible but you know that's definitely uh 
it's there. It's there to be explored. Yeah. I'd say, um, so, you know, one of the ways that I'm disposed to think about this is in terms of the trophic network studies that I've seen, the food web studies, and how, for example, um, some food webs, such as the, I mean, I never thought I'd be talking about this stuff on this show, but you know, whatever. It's um, fucking great though. I love it. Yeah. So like the, the Martu of Australia, the, the Aboriginal peoples of this, uh, I want to say, I think they're up in Queensland today, you know, what is now called yeah. Queensland. Um, they, or they might be in the, the Northern territory, but they were fire hunters. And so they were, they would do, set patchy fires to scare goannas out of their burrows. Mm -hmm. And so while the primary ingredient in their diet was lizard meat, they, they ate dozens of different animals. Uh, you know, you look at a map and it's, you know, you see lines like arrows for almost everything living in that environment, finding its way to the food or use of the Martu people somehow. Mm. Um, and then you see the, the food web around them when they were removed from their land and put into civilization, like moved into the cities. And actually when that happened, uh, first of all, obviously like flower suddenly becomes the dominant, like this enormous planet in this solar system of, of food relationships. Yeah. Um, but what happens to the, the system that they left is it, completely crashed because there was like a certain amount of creative destruction going on. Um, there's a, a Joseph Schumpeter, like a, I think he was like a Bavarian economist, he called it creative destruction, talking about how technologies create niches for new technologies, but then they destroy opportunities that were like held together by systems of previous technologies. Yeah. And so like, you get a, you know, scale this kind of thinking out to the, you know, the whole, the whole galaxy or the whole universe, cosmos. And, you know, questions like when you remove the Martu from their land uh, and the ecosystem crashes and then you put them back and then they're able to, to inspire biodiversity back into the region and like support all of the, the large charismatic uh, mammals that were inhabiting those areas because of the burning, because of the way it returns nutrients to the soil, creates heterogeneity in the landscape. And the whole question of like predation itself becomes very complicated, you know, because there are certainly, you know, like I, I guess a simpler example would have been like the wolves in Yellowstone story, you know, that it's like, um, yeah, there are predators in these systems, but uh, there are cascades of predation where like if you remove something, something else is going to bloom and then it's going to throw things out of balance. And so, you know, all of the best science fiction and all of the, the I would say, most <laughs> sober exopolitics. I have seen has been about acknowledging that there is already structure and that we cannot just impose our, our like 
two-year-old I want this nonsense on it you know like it the, a much more appropriate relationship to that structure is a desire to understand it that said that said I I think a lot of the relationships are symbiotic for more information on Michael and his artwork check the show notes for links happened at Ariel School in Zimbabwe. It happened at Westall School in Australia. And it happened at Broadhaven School in Pembrokeshire, Wales. School children had a daylight sighting in 1977. The children described seeing a silver, cigar-shaped craft with a dome over the midsection of the object. It instilled them with an inexplicable desire to flee, although they didn't. When they frenetically shared their experience, their teachers did not believe them. So the headmaster of the school quickly separated the children and had them create artistic renderings of what they observed. With few variations, the depictions were strikingly similar among numerous children. In fact, their sighting became part of a larger wave in the area. People also reported craft in nearby Little Haven, and that sighting included two humanoid occupants. The beings exited the object, and the ground was badly scorched where the ship had landed. Skeptics said the school children must have misinterpreted a sewage tank as a UFO. Yes. That explains it. An entire class of children spontaneously acquired collective aphasia, so severe that a sewage tank, which they saw every day, suddenly obtained the countenance of a spaceship. They then uniformly depicted that sewage tank as the same spacecraft in their artwork. Compounding this mystery, there was a second schoolyard sighting that very same day at Hubberston School in Milford Haven, Wales. Over four decades later, the children, now grown, have not changed their story or their interpretation, even though they were physically beaten and viciously ridiculed for holding fast to their account of the event. One witness said, quote, it would have been so much easier to take back my story. End quote. To see the children's portrayals of the sighting and to learn more about the Broadhaven event, check the show notes. Aliens and Artists is brought to you by theliminalmuse.com, offering one-on-one work with me, Stuart Davis. Sessions focus on creativity, spirituality, and non-ordinary experience. Go to theliminalmuse.com to book a session. Or check the show notes for a link. Enchanted Patreon. Sensual patrons. Passionate StuartDavis.com. Love Patreon sex patrons. Fleshly StuartDavis.com. Enlightenment Patreon 
carnal patrons, naked Patreon nude, stuartdavis.com. Peace, Patreon. Fulfillment, patrons. Insight, stuartdavis.com. Manhood, Patreon, womanliness, patrons, erotic. StuartDavis.com Heavy Petting Patreon Non-Duality Patron Chasm Spasm Orgasm StuartDavis.com We leave you with a song by Michael Garfield Olympus Mons from his EP Martian Arts <laughs> <laughs> 